This podcast and the many that follow are proudly brought to you by our partner, Titleist, the number one ball in golf. Now, as it relates to earning an edge, our friends at Titleist have been the leaders since the early 1900s. And in order to compete and win at the highest level, frankly, there's no room for second best. For this reason, the best players in the world trust Titleist. Welcome back to the Earn Your Edge podcast. I'm Corey Lumberg from Altus Performance. And before we get into this week's episode, just a quick thank you to everyone who shared and provided positive feedback on last week's episode with George Gankus. Check it out if you haven't already. Uh, it's one of our favorite episodes and one that kind of showed us the power of social media. So many of you shared and brought new listeners to the show for the first time. So very much appreciated. Reaching a larger audience means that we get to have more conversations like the one that we are sharing with you today. This is a guy that I've cheered for and admired for a long time. We, we kind of reached out to him last fall to try to do some things for our study tour in Vegas, and the schedules didn't work out, but we were able to talk him into joining us for an interview instead. So Cameron and I are joined by Poker Hall of Famer, Daniel Negrano, Kid Poker. I tried hard not to be too big of a fanboy during this, so hopefully I played it cool, but Daniel has a large and devoted fan base in his world and someone who I've followed closely for a long time. If you're not familiar with poker, I'll run through a few of Daniel's accolades. Nearly 40 million in tournament winnings, not to count the cash winnings, six World Series of Poker bracelets, two WPT titles, former World Series of Poker Player of the Year, WPT Player of the Year, a best-selling author, a blogger, an avid golfer, high-stakes golfer, and in general, one of the most just well-liked and charismatic and insightful guys in all of poker. And obviously, we're always excited to chat with anyone who has separated themselves like Daniel has, but poker is of particular interest. Not only is it something that I'm passionate about myself, but there's just a ton of parallels between high-stakes poker and you know high sports performance. So if you're a golfer listening that doesn't play poker, don't fret, stay open-minded. As we try to do often, looking outside of golf can provide some interesting new ideas that can easily be applied to to getting better at golf or, or really any endeavor. So Daniel digs into some some really important concepts like, you know, how do you deal with pressure, decision making under great amounts of pressure with a lot on the line, and then some really cool ways that he reflects on past performance and learns from that and and integrates and implements the new lessons learned. So again, thanks for sharing and spreading the word. We hope you'll enjoy this week's conversation with Daniel and do the same, but enjoy this week's episode of the Earn Your Edge podcast. Daniel, did we cover all the accolades? Did we hit the highlights there? Uh, I, yeah, it, it, was, it was very, very um, kind of you. That's for sure. <laughs> well, and, and so we'll kind of start as a kicking off point. Our, our mission is always to unpack what high performers do, their habits, the, the traits that they have that have separated them from their peers. So as a starting point, if you had to name maybe the top two or three kind of superpowers that po- that great poker players have, or uh, basically things that you've done or actions that you've taken that you feel like have have separated you from others that have you know strived to do and accomplish what you have, what would they be? Yeah, well, there's certainly three char- characteristics that make up you know a top notch poker player, and uh, of the three, I would say one is sort of an innate superpower, and the rest just take like effort and work and. You know, the first one, which is the superpower, is kind of just the talent and card sense for the game and for people and how they think and, you know, under like reading body language, understanding, you know, how people will react to different situations and what adjustments they'll make. The other, you know, the, the stuff that's learnable is like learning the fundamentals, right? That's like the schoolwork. That's where, you know, somebody who's a good university student who knows how to study, they can, you know, be a student at that area. The third, which is 
probably the most important, despite, you know, it being, you know, attainable is discipline, the self-discipline to deal with the emotional swings and the ups and downs that are inevitable in a poker tournament. So the superpower is just an, a knack for knowing how to like mix it up and keep your opponents guessing and having like a real deep read into uh, how people think. I'm pretty sure that when most people that aren't that familiar with poker, when they think of poker players, discipline is not maybe the first thing that comes to mind. They think of, you know, late nights, sleeping in, playing poker all day. But what I know about you is, you know, you've got a stringent workout schedule, you're disciplined in your diet, you're, you're also committed to a certain number of hours studying and coaching. So can you dig in a little bit more to that role of, of kind of discipline in your daily life and how you go about maintaining high standards of discipline for yourself on a daily basis? Yeah, so discipline covers a lot of things. Like there's discipline at the table, which is essentially avoiding tilt, which what that means is, you know, you're having a terrible night. You said you're going to quit at nine o'clock. Quit at nine o'clock. Don't play till four or five in the morning when you're losing. You know, don't start playing hands. You know you shouldn't because you're chasing. Like don't lose your cool. Stay composed and continue to do what you're doing. The discipline away from the table I find is equally important. And I learned it luckily, you know, at a very relatively early age in my 20s in that. So what is my intention if I'm going to play a tournament, right? My intention is to win. So then I make sure that everything I do is aligned with that. Is drinking till six in the morning the night before part of that? No. You know, is booking my flight early just in case I bust part of like my intention to win? No. Like hanging out with friends. There's a lot of specific things. Getting eight hours of sleep, making sure I'm physically fit, making sure I have the food that I'm going to want. I'm personally a vegan. So a lot of places I go in Europe, you know, you have to do some planning. And if you don't, you're kind of like, SOL, if you will. So speak to the, uh, the table discipline. You said that uh, that lifestyle discipline, you came about that in your early 20s. And I don't, ima- I don't imagine the table discipline was something that you, I guess, came to the game of poker with at a, in, your, in your, teen, your teenage years. So how did you go about learning that table discipline? And at what age did you begin to realize, oh, I'm actually figuring this thing out? Yeah. So obviously, I started in my teenage years. And really, there's no substitute for experience when it comes to developing that kind of discipline. And, you know, uh, many times in my early 20s or whatever, I've got my rent money on the table. And, you know, that's going to that's going to affect you emotionally. And when that happens, you know, you could be playing a hand perfectly well, you lose it. Now, what's next? Are you going to be able to keep your composure and just know that, listen, you're doing the right things, stick with it? Or does that cause you to go on tilt, which is what we call it, and start playing, you know, less than premium hands and just looking to be sloppy and things like that. So for me, it just take the lessons of learning. Like I feel like making mistakes is actually important for growth. Making mistakes is not a mistake. Learning nothing from those mistakes is where the mistake lies. If you keep repeating the same mistakes over and over, that just shows like, you know, a lack of self-awareness and understanding of like what needs to shift. So when I make a mistake, I looked at, I looked at breakdown and I think to myself, this is an opportunity for a real breakthrough. Like how am I going to deal with this situation next time it comes up? So those mistakes that you make, and it's easy in golf for us to say, hey, you made bogey on that hole. Why? What, did, what happened to where you made bogey? But with what you're doing, there's in poker, there's a, an amount of variance and luck involved where you know failure isn't just expected. It's, it's 100% unavoidable. There will be times where you're running bad. So I, I'd love for you to dig in, uh, you know, the way that you just spoke about, about mistakes right there, just your relationship with failure and, and how you respond to maybe not even just uh, isolated incidents of failure, but just periods where you're running bad because, you know, that, that's one of the themes that we've uncovered in having these kinds of conversations with high performers is that they react to the, those challenging moments in a much more productive and empowering way. So just curious if you could kind of dig into 
kind of your relationship with failure on maybe a broader perspective and how you deal with that? Yeah, no question. You know, you bring up golf and, you know, the fact that there's variance in poker. Well, there, it also exists in golf to a great degree, actually. I mean, you, you could hit a perfect shot and then after you hit the shot, like the wind just randomly kicks up and moves your ball eight feet off and now you're in the water in a bunker. You know, you hit a sprinkler head, it goes left. There's like, you hit a putt and all of a sudden it hits a pebble and moves to the right. So, you know, very similar to poker, like that's what's going to happen to you a lot of the time where even though you do everything right, per se, like people say to me, you know, that same question, like, well, why didn't you win the tournament? What went wrong? I'm like, I didn't do anything wrong. Okay. I had pocket aces. The guy had like a two and a seven. He went all in and I was unfortunate. So the key focus there is really dissecting and being self-aware enough to go, okay, is it me or is it bad luck? Is the cause of my continued losing over this stretch a combination of the two or whatnot? So what I typically like to do is confer with, you know, other pros or other people and say, you know what? How, how do you think I played this hand? You see any mistakes here? And then you sort of have to really be after wisdom and all the years I've been playing. I'm much better now at being able to identify, all right, am I losing because I'm just playing bad and I'm not focused or is this just like random luck? And that takes a lot of time and, uh, you know, wisdom in a sense and experience to know the difference. And one of the things about poker that draws people in a lot is like, you know, sometimes they get on a lucky streak and think they're really good. And that can be like, you know, the pride before the fall, right. uh, you know, before like reality sets in for them. Right. You, you spoke about reflection right there, particularly in the context of recruiting the help of others, uh, in a trust tree, so to speak, of trusted peers that you would then kind of bounce ideas off. Uh, but self-reflection is also an important um, aspect, I'd imagine. I know it is in in high-performance sports in the world of golf. We talk about it a lot, and we use it to identify performance gaps to help inform where we need to focus on improving. And I feel like it's uh, probably especially important for you in poker as well. Can you speak to just the the moments, let's say, uh, pre-event or in isolation after an event that you spend? And is there a, a specific way that you document these things? So then you're codifying them, you're building this database that you can reflect back on. Yeah, well, typically when it comes to preparation, like I have an event coming up in December uh, that I came in second in recently. It was a $3 million score for second place. That that event is back in December. And it's going to be against a small group of about 40 to 50 people that are all mostly professional. And so what I'll do leading up to the event is I will spend a couple hours. I have video specific to each player where I could watch a player for like four to five hours and I will look for any sort of tendencies I can pick up on just so that I'm as prepared as possible for when I encounter them inevitably, which is what's going to happen. So I will track tendencies. Like for example, you know, I see this guy on the flop, he sprays his chips, right? So how he does that quite a bit. What percentage of the time when he sprays his chips, is he got a very strong hand and how often is he doing with a weak hand? So maybe I see 20 examples. If 17 of the examples were very weak hand, I'm going to put that in my database because it's not, it's never, nothing is so clearly like 100% or 0%, but you can start to notice tendencies. So I feel like, you know, that plus also going over my own, you know, game and like, how are people adjusting to me? That's where the self-awareness is really the most important aspect of being successful at poker in terms of being aware of like, okay, so you think you're good at poker. Great. You're not nearly as good as you think you are. You're just not. And there's always room for improvement. And when you get to that point where you feel like I've got it, I've mastered the game, it's finished, you know, I've got it all. That's the direct moment when everyone else starts to surpass you because they're being more, you know, innovative and creative with how they think about the game. How much more like when golf after a tournament, when a player gets back from an event, because, you know, 
it's kind of weird in golf where we're not actually there watching the majority of the time. It's great when we have TV coverage and we're, we're able to do that. So what we rely on is a, a pretty thorough debriefing with our clients where we'll go whole by whole. Are you looking at that specific degree of like hand history? And do you have people that you would refer to as, as coaches or, or think of as coaches that you would then break that down? I know you spoke a little bit of, you know, maybe on a, during a, a tournament break, you would talk to some other players about how they see it. But is there anything formalized that you have where you're reflecting even as discrete to each hand? Yeah. So obviously, you know, now with the iPhone, it's very easy to make notes. And one of the things I'll do is anytime I'm in a very intricate spot where I'm not 100% clear on what the exact play was, I will jot down the specific details of the hand. I will go over it with a couple coaches that I speak to. And then in addition to that, we'll put it into what's available now, which wasn't before, uh, a solver. So you basically can put it into a computer and it will run simulations and it will tell you like what the preferred play is and how what percentage is and whatnot. So so what it'll do is after I've made the play, I've went over the sort of human element, I'll go, okay, well, if I was playing against a robot, did I make the correct play? And the, and the computer can tell me that. So those are great ways to learn whenever you're in unique spots, which they're always going to come up. You know, you, I've played millions of poker hands, but you know, there's always a new spot where I'm like, huh, how do I handle this? This, this I haven't seen a check raise turn, check raise river in a long time. Like, what does this guy likely have and all this stuff? So breaking down all the hand combinations the player can have in different spots is a great educational tool. Like there's no substitute for experience when it comes to poker and, you know, using that experience in a valuable way where you take hands that puzzled you and don't just be like, well, whatever, move on. Like use that. And you could spend five, six, maybe 10 hours on one specific hand trying to break down what was the right play and did I make it? So let's take a quick break in the action to recognize one of our partners, Under Armour. It's Under Armour's mission to make all athletes better through passion, design, and the relentless pursuit of innovation. And that ethos or mission statement couldn't be more aligned with the Earn Your Edge podcast. We're thankful to be powered by Under Armour. From a strategic standpoint, kind of pulling on that thread just a little bit more, the utilization of the internal, I guess, uh, computer or calculator and making decisions based on what the math might tell you versus just using your intuition. Can you speak to that a bit? So most of my poker career, I've always been what's known as known as an ex- exploitative player, right? Which is a field player using my instincts. As you said, there's a new sort of brand of poker player that's been around for the last five years that are playing game theory optimal. And what that essentially means is if someone's playing game theory optimal, they're doing things in such a way that you cannot exploit. For example, you know, if you play rock, paper, scissors, a game theory optimal player is throwing 33% rock, 30% paper, 3%, you know, scissors. Hmm. An exploitative player is looking to see, well, wow, I noticed this guy throws rock a lot, right? He's throwing rock like 80% of the time. So I'm going to throw paper a little more often and take advantage of that. Whereas now that I'm doing that, I become exploitable. So if you figure out what I'm doing to veer from you know game theory, you could take advantage of me as well. So that's the psychological warfare that I enjoy. Having said that, in order to stay relevant against these young players, I felt it was very important to have a base and understanding in game theory. So I worked really hard on that. And now the way I think about a hand is, all right, what is the mathematically correct play against a robot, right? If I'm playing a robot, what should I do? Got it. All right, well, now I'm not playing against a robot. I'm playing against Cameron, right? So I know Cameron, he calls way more than the robot. He's calling way too often. So instead of bluffing the same frequency against Cameron, I'm going to bluff way less and just value bet more. So I'm going to make the adjustments. Uh, once I know what the, like, the base you know, 
correct play is. Now I will adjust player to player and uh, use my exploitative sense. Gotcha. I'll get a little off topic here of poker and try to bring it back to golf a little bit. You are an avid golfer. Have you found yourself, you know, because there's right now there's a lot of talk and a, a lot of kind of new ideas coming out as far as the strategy of playing golf. Have you found yourself kind of taking some of these ideas and how you're have you ever thought about mapping out a golf course a little bit differently now that you're kind of thinking this way at a poker table? Well, so the good news for me is I have a guy who his job is to be my golf guy. Yeah. So he lines up my putts. He lines me up on the greens. He does all the hard work in terms of like making sure that, you know, I'm, I'm like doing everything I'm supposed to be doing. And that was something that I learned was valuable when I was gambling very, very high stakes at golf. And I noticed everybody had a guy, right? And I didn't have a guy. So I'm out there flailing and I don't know what's wrong with my swing and, you know, I can't fix it. You know, you don't, if you're, you're out there by yourself and you have nobody like that notices it, you're like, you're not shifting your weight, right. Or something like that. So having him there, instead of me losing a million dollars, cause I don't, can't fix it. He can give me a suggestion in the moment and say like, you know, you're not getting through it. Like, Oh, okay. So I'll start to get through it or have a different swing thought or something like that. So, um, for me, when I'm gambling for high stakes, I, I feel it's very valuable to have uh, someone there who's very knowledgeable about the game. Like this is a guy, he, you know, he's seen every swing Tiger Woods has ever made, you know, and he, he understands the game. So anything, I, I put it to you this way. Like when I go to the driving range, I don't let no one get in my head. Like, Oh, you need to try this. I'm like, ah, do not speak to me. <laughs> I listen to one person and one person only, because all you're going to do is mess me up. Like one time I had a lesson with Hank Haney, who was Tiger's coach. And he gave me a couple pointers. Right. And it was very awkward and weird. Like he wanted me swinging as fast as possible in my backswing and as fast as my as, as I could through. Just sort of get some club head speed and hit the ball a little bit further. So I'm doing that at the driving range. And of course, people looking at me going, what in the world is this guy doing? So of course, everyone's telling me, you know, you need to slow it down, slow it down. I'm like, Hank Haney said, speed it up. I'll listen to him. Thank you very much. <laughs> with, with the assumption that this guy might want to shout out, who is your adult supervision? Who is that coach? Well, his name's Christian Sanchez. Uh, he never played on the pro tour. He was a little on the smaller side, 5'6", 135 pounds, you know, still hits at about 280, 290. But, uh, you know, he has a wife and three kids and never pursued it. But he's a guy that we gambled. The, one of the first funny stories is one of the first times we sort of got hooked up as being like, he's my caddy. Within the first week after working with me, he had to play with me in a match against two other guys where we're playing $50,000 a hole. Okay. And, and he's supposed to be my scratch golfer shooting 72. Well, he triple bogeys the second hole. You know, he doubles the fourth hole. He's, he's like, he's, you know, it's, 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 that's not I'm from most longer shouting Christian out. <laughs> I mean, most professional golfers don't know that kind of pressure when it's their own money on the line. Right. It's very different playing for money. So he was a little, you know, you know, he wasn't there the first nine holes. Luckily I carried us and I shot way better than I was supposed to. And then he turned it around and we ended up doing okay. But it was a, it was a nice introduction for him into the sort of the gambling world and the, the stress that he was about to endure. But as time went on, him and I, we did quite well in the golf course and won uh, some pretty big matches. Yeah. So uh, let's unpack that more pressure. Clearly you've been exposed to the uh, greatest of uh, pressure in the poker world, high stakes games and whatnot. And when you get to those late stages in a tournament, each decision carries significantly more weight. How do you cope with that pressure and remain in a state where you're still able to make what you would perceive at that time to be the right decision in, in the face of those huge consequences? So this is exactly where I feel like I'm just unique and different than most people, because the more pressure that's put on me, the more, whether it's golf or poker, 
the the more like I love rising to the challenge and it becomes easy. Like I get to what I like to call like a hyper focus. Sometimes on day one of a tournament, you know, it's a five day event. I may be a little distracted, maybe on my phone, not as like engaged because I know that it's going to be a marathon. But once we're down to like two, three tables and, you know, the money's on the line and the cameras are on, that's where I'm even more comfortable. And I take advantage, frankly, of the pressure on other people, knowing that they may crack and they may suffer. And I'm like very, very calm and cool. I feel like that's actually even more intimidating for them, seeing how relaxed I am, despite the fact that we might be playing for, you know, millions of dollars. So for me, I've always had a knack for loving the pressure. I mean, I've had some, I've had big putts. I've had putts where, you know, the difference was 550,000 on a seven footer that's, you know, breaking about three feet. And my percentage on those putts is pretty damn good. Um, that's, that's definitely a skill that I have is that, you know, my back against the wall um, makes me better. How far back can you trace the emergence of that skill? And I mean, if you, if you can possibly answer this, where did it come from? So, I mean, teen years and even in my early 20s. In my early 20s, I was playing poker on a very limited bankroll. Like, I didn't have a lot of money. I mean, I was just a kid, you know, starting out. So any time that I was really short on money, like, I found a way to just bear down and just to, like, have that extra emphasis of, like, they're not getting me. I'm going to do everything in my power to make, make sure that I make a comeback here. And I'm going to really focus in. I'm going to be like, a, I'm going to have a killer mentality where every chip on the table is my chip. Mm-hmm. And uh, that typically happens under stress when I'm under duress. Where did it come from? I think it just came from, you know, my parents have always instilled like a, just a massive amount of confidence in me being able to do whatever I want to do and be except, exceptional at it. So I've always had a belief that whatever it was I was going to do in my life, that I would be above average or really, really good at it. And, um, I feel like I have, and, um, I just believe in myself really like during those pressure moments, I think like, who would I rather have in this situation other than me? Nobody, because I know I'm not going to crack. Like I, I love this. Like I'm going to, I'm going to perform better under pressure than when I'm relaxed. And that's, I think the opposite of 99% of people. Without doubt. And we hear that self-belief and that kind of that courage that we call it bravado and bravery and a lot of the golfers and a lot of the athletes that we've spoken to as well. And I want to just ask a question, kind of the flip side of that question then on the first stages, early stages of a tournament, because we'll hear this from golfers sometimes is maybe we'll look at their average score on Thursdays on the first round and it's not very It's not as good as what it is when they're either trying to make the cut on Friday or when they're trying to make a bigger check on Saturday. I'm curious how you go about handling those moments where you may find it difficult to focus and kind of what strategies you've deployed to get better and to try to have some of that focus early on. Yeah, there's no question that enemy number one for me is early stage complacency. You know, I've been doing this for many, many years. I know what it takes to win, but the early stages can be mundane, can be boring, you know, go through the motions sort of thing. So I've essentially come to terms with the fact that if I'm going to play a six-day tournament where I'm playing for 12, 14 hours a day, I'm not going to be able to be in hyper-focus that duration. This is not possible. So I allow myself at times to sort of check out. I feel like, you know, the first couple hours, I'll really map out my table so I understand what's going on and who's there. But if I start to feel myself, you know, you know, being bored, which is a real enemy of a poker player because boredom usually leaves to, you know, playing poorly. I will check out, you know, sometimes and I'll like be on my phone. I might text a few people. I might read a couple things and just kind of like get through those periods. But ideally, you know, you, you know, you want to be able to focus as well as you can on day one. But I know that, uh, I guess being kind to myself, if you will, and like realizing that like, I've been doing this long enough. Sure. Day one's important, 
but it's nowhere near as important as day two, which is no and, and day three and, and so so forth. So I know that even my C game is good enough to get me through those periods. And I also know the danger if I do allow myself to be bored or whatever, that can actually have me playing my F game. And that's just that. And then I take myself out of events. So day one, a lot of the time for me is like, let's just coast. Don't make any big mistakes. Let everyone else screw up and just stay in the tournament because you can't win the tournament on the first day, but you can blow it and you can lose it. And I typically, you know, try to coast through day one. In the interest of getting better at anything, we often talk about time in the saddle or time on task, just getting in those reps as a means to continue to improve and learn and develop. And I guess when you were getting started, it was still very important, but I'm assuming that the game has changed. And with the advent of being able to play multi-table online games, the amount of hands over a shorter time period or over a short time period has changed the, I guess, time horizon for getting better and for these new players cutting teeth. Have you also adopted those same, I guess, training practices, those habits to accelerate your abilities? And if not, and how have you kind of uh, combated this uh, this growth of opportunity for young people to get better quicker at the game? Yeah, so from my era, you know, the 2004 era, the people that were on TV a lot and doing quite well, none of them are left. There's one other one that still plays at the highest levels. I'm the other one. And part of it is because I always, every few months, look at what these kids are doing and be like, okay, you have to continue to evolve. Never rest on your laurels. Mm-hmm. If you want to be relevant, you have to learn from them. So absolutely, it's it's just taken a step further than just being able to play online poker. In the last two and a half years, I would say, it's really gone to a new level because of these solvers that somebody created online. So now, some kid from Germany who's very good at school, right? He's great at studying. He can simply use these solvers and study it like he would any sort of course he did in school and become an, a killer poker player. So we're seeing a lot more of those types of players. And I realized, like, I didn't even know how to use the solver. I'm like, I'm just, like, totally clueless. So I hired a guy who is, a you know, computer engineer, another one who's a coach who uses these things to show me how to use them and implement them so that I can be, you know, up to par with these guys. But I think it's a huge mistake to ever get so set in your ways that you're like, oh, these kids today trying to hit it 350, 400. Back in my day, we took a two iron out, kept it in the fairway, and played it safe. I'm like, okay, well, you're not going to win if you're not incorporating what these guys learning. You got to like, you know, you got to like uh, update your gear and update everything with the times. And that's something that I've always been open to. And that again, comes back to self-awareness and realizing like, okay, you know, if I'm, if I'm just as good as I was three years ago, if I'm the same player, I'm not as good relative to the fields right. because they're all getting better. And if I'm not getting better, I'm getting worse by definition. This is just to satisfy my own curiosity as a, as a poker player, but but we ask this question a lot of our golfers. What's been the most important thing that you've learned in the last 365 days? I think the thing I've learned most is because I put a lot of study into sort of all this computer stuff and this game theory is that while that's really important, what separates me and my biggest skill is my exploitative nature and my, you know, my ability to have the instincts to read people and to like, you know, not necessarily make the buy the book play, not necessarily follow what the robot says, but to go with what has always worked for me and to trust that the 20 years of experience I have is valuable and not completely abandon and ignore it. Like, I mean, I I guess the analogy I would make for a golfer is like, okay, you know, whatever you were good at for most of your career, like just because you're learning to work on a different part of your game, you shouldn't allow that part to suffer. That's still your bread and butter of what makes you great. And uh, I feel like maybe for a short period of time when I was learning all this math stuff, I was becoming too robotic myself and I was losing a bit of, you know, who I am naturally as a poker player. 
Yeah, we speak a lot with our athletes about having that anchor skill or anchor skills, the bread and butter, so to speak, the things that you know you can get a score done, uh, a round completed with uh, maybe skill A and skill B, and then coloring outside of those lines to try and enhance whatever areas are opportunity for improvement is also necessary at the same time. But you go back there and you say, I I try and amplify my skills. I'm on this journey of mastery, which certainly means that I need to turn over those stones to try and find those opportunities for improvement at the same time. I'm going to trust my gut. I'm going to trust my intuition and the 20 years of time invested in learning and competing at this uh, at this game do not count for not in fact they count for a a lot so one thing that i heard in a in a recent interview i think it's a podcast interview you gave is the importance of confidence now clearly what we do know is that confidence comes from a measure of success but also confidence can be created by what we uh, what we tell ourselves can you speak to uh, where you rank playing and performing with confidence uh, for yourself? Oh, no question. With poker specifically, if your confidence takes a hit, you are doomed. You are simply doomed. You you will not be able to succeed against you know top competition if you feel as though your you know your confidence is waning. And part of the reason for that is your mindset switches from you know going for it aggressively to play to win to playing not to lose. Like, okay, you know, things have been going badly. I guess I don't want to make this play because it could cost me. Let me just take the safer approach. And like, when you're lacking in confidence, you're missing out on all these opportunities to build your chip stack and to continue to thrive. But when you're confident, not only are you making moves that are like, you know, next level, you're doing it with like, oh, this is just going to work. You know, I feel like this guy's going to fold all day here. I'm going to run this bluff and it's going to work. And when your confidence is down, you maybe hold back from running a very successful bluff because you know, things have not been going well for you. So what I typically like to do, you know, is, as I said, before a big tournament is kind of like put in the work so that I know I'm prepared and have a game plan, right? If I have a game plan and I'm going to stick to that game plan, I know that it's going to work. That helps me to be more confident when I'm playing. Like practice makes perfect, as they say, right? So if I've done it, you know, for a while, I know what I'm looking for. I'm looking for this guy's eye glance. I'm looking for, you know, the swallow from one player or the way he throws his chips in. I'm ready, you know? And as long as I'm ready and prepared, that elevates my level of confidence instantly, regardless of what my results have been in the last little while. But there's no question that recent result bias is going to have an effect on anyone's confidence. And that's just a fact. That's just It's impossible, I think, to avoid that to a small degree. Now, do you go back and review previous success, game film, so to speak? All the time. Yeah. So that's one of my main study tools is to break down different players and watching what are they doing. I'm looking for their playing style. I'm looking for the types of hands they're playing. I'm looking for their facial expressions, mannerisms, body language, body posture, and I'll keep notes. Like I have pretty, I have in my phone a very valuable set of uh, notes on players. And when I sit at a table, I'll go through all the specific things I know about this guy that, uh, you know, is going to like help me make a very difficult decision in crunch time. The number of videos I've watched of you predicting and calling a player's hands are inspirational. They get me jacked. I imagine you watching them also get you jacked. Do you, do you ever think that that is giving away too much of your uh, inherent advantage that you know that or do you feel like that's that's strengthening your advantage at the table i think there's a psychological sort of warfare that happens at a poker table where when you tell someone during a hand you know exactly what they have that's a dominant you know that that puts them in a shell of fear you know concern of you know what like when this guy just crushes me like why would i ever f- try to mess with him when he knows exactly what i have so part of it is when i want to tame someone that I think may be a problem, 
like I'll let them know, listen, listen, buddy, I'm in your head. I'm in your head more than you are. So you can try all your funky stuff, but it ain't going to work. And I'll tell you why, because I know right now you have Ace King. And when you do that to someone, they wonder like, how does he know that? And I just want to get them second guessing themselves. Of all of your greatest hits, those instances where you've, where you've called someone's hand at the table, is there a one that comes to mind that you're most proud of? Uh, there's several, but I think there was one funny one where I was in Europe on the European poker tour. And I knew this guy had aces or kings for sure. Just the way that he bet the hand before the flop and on the river. And, but he bet the end. I couldn't beat a pair of aces or kings. I couldn't beat the hand, but I felt like the board was scary enough that I could represent a hand stronger than he had, which is just one pair of aces. So I made a big raise on him and he was thinking about it. And I looked at him and I was like, am I allowed to say what he has to the floor man as if I didn't know? I was like, so I'm allowed to say like, he has aces, right? Like I can say he has aces, but I just can't say what I have. Okay. All right. So I can say that you have aces right now. And I know that you have aces. Cool. And so he's like, okay, he knows I have aces and he raised me. He must be able to beat aces. And the guy, of course, mucked his hand and, you know, I didn't have, I had a pair of nines, which didn't beat aces. So that was kind of fun because uh, I think that he might've called me had I not, you know, made some of those comments and told him, I know what he has. The importance of, of confidence that you speak to, as I'm sitting here thinking about, especially in golf, is, is there a case or a time that you found it to actually be possibly a maladaptive trait in that there's overconfidence? To where you can, I mean, in speaking from experience, like I'll, I'll go and play up a stakes. I'll, I'll go play a 5-10 game where I'm like really kind of nervous and I'm really careful with how I'm playing. But then I may go back to a 1-2 game and there's this overconfidence that creates some bad play. And, and it certainly can happen the same way on the golf course when you're going after pins that you shouldn't. And overconfidence can actually be an issue. It's not one that we encounter too much, but just in, in hearing you kind of talk through that, I'm curious if that's ever anything that's on your radar of to kind of monitor and keep in check. No question about it. Overconfidence, the best way to describe it is, is it often leads to really sloppy play. And there's a fine line, right? You want to be confident and make a lot of moves and, you know, you know, have faith in what you're doing. But when you're at the place where you're overconfident, sometimes you're stretching too far from the fundamentals, right? Whether it's like, okay, you know what? I'm real confident I'll go with this pin, even though I should, should be at the center of the green, right? That's a perfect example, really, in terms of how it relates to poker as well, where, you know, hey, you know what? This bluff may work here. I should try. Like, but you know what? You know you shouldn't be. You know you don't need to make this play. Don't make it. So taking the much more safe approach. You can clearly become reckless. And the other thing, too, is just like playing too many hands. Like if I feel like I have a good feel for what everyone's doing, like I feel like I can play any two cards. Well, that's kind of silly to do that, right? But if I'm really in that overconfident mode, I can sort of get into that mode. And then the problem is, is like, now I'm always playing crappy cards against really good hands. And that's like, okay, that's pushing the envelope too far. And that can be very detrimental. And you can confuse yourself and to think you're just playing really, really good. But, you know, you're actually, you've gone too far the other way on the pendulum of like aggression. Well, and that kind of brings us to like really good decision-making processes. And I know it's certainly something that we talk with golfers a lot, but you know, over the course of a session or a tournament, you are faced with like thousands of high stakes decisions that mean a lot for, and, and you're having to consider a lot of different informational sources, whether it be the range of hands of your opponent or the bet size or stack size or whatever the odds are, you know, what the tournament structure is. And you've got all these different pieces of information that you're having to process. And I'm sure that with your wisdom, a lot of that happens almost subconsciously. Just like when a golfer walks up to a certain lie 
He doesn't have to consciously kind of walk through all those steps. I'm curious if you have kind of like a decision-making process that's formally kind of step-by-step in your mind as you're going through a hand, or if it's something that happens with, we'll go back to that intuition that, that we spoke to before. Yeah. So, you know, like similar to golf, of course, again, it's like once you've done it a million times, like the, you know, the, the, the procedure of like getting set up and like going through the hands and stuff like that, like I can eyeball some, I can eyeball the pot and be like, it's around 3,500. You know, I'm getting about two and a half to one. Like I don't have to be as pinpoint accurate because I have a pretty good idea of underneath, underneath all that, like what I want to do. And there's been an evolution in poker at the highest level where we play with a shot clock now. Hmm. So you only have 30 seconds to make a decision. So Typically, I do have a process in terms of how I break down a hand, and it's like, what are all the clues I have up until now from the way he played his card for the flop, on the flop, and on the turn? Like, what did he do? What was his bet sizing? And now I'm going to try to quickly, you know, factor in, like, what range of hands are he, is he value betting, and, you know, what range is he bluffing? And then sort of try to make a guesstimation there. That's difficult to do in 30 seconds if you actually put pen and paper, you know, and try to actually finite, like, get the exact numbers, but... Once you get more experience, you don't need to be that finite. You just have to have a rough idea. I'm like, okay, I think he has, you know, 50 combos of bluffs and you know, like 25 combos around of value bets. So that's two to one or, you know, and I'm getting like even money on this bet. So I can do that much more quickly when I'm rounding off and trying to be, uh, you know, I guess uh, close enough ballpark. It's good enough usually. Isn't that the value of kind of combining the game theory with those kind of intuitive have with all that experience like are the game theory players able to make those calculations in 30 seconds a lot of them are yes a lot of them because they've had so much more practice than i have of it so i and i do think there's like tons of value in being able to do that so what i'll do like i try to as quickly as i can without being as finite as, as maybe they are is think from okay so from a game theory perspective i should call here because i should call for example with the top 50 percent of my range based on the bet and based on the pot size, right? Now I'm going to factor in all the other variables I have that I know. This guy looks like he's very confident right now. He threw his chips in a way that made me believe he has it. So even though theoretically I know I should make this call, now I'll, I'll deviate because of, you know, whether physical factors or the fact that I think, okay, this guy, he knows I call too much, so I'm going to fold this one because he's really not bluffing here often enough. So, but it's, if you don't know what the anchor is, which is the game theory optimal play, then you're just guessing, I'm not just guessing. Like I'm saying, okay, I know the right plays to call here, but I have logical reasons why I'm going to veer from optimal strategy because of whatever other you know, you know, clues that I have. Shifting gears a little bit, do you have a favorite player when you go up against you love to beat, and why? I think it's always fun to have Phil Hellmuth at the table because <laughs> he's such a he's such a strange form of narcissist. Like he's actually like a really good-hearted, nice guy with table whatnot but clearly suffers from, you know, narcissistic personality disorder. And so it's just fun to needle him. And then when you do beat him in a pot, he's like, how did this happen to me? I deserve to win, you know, like, and it's just seeing him blow up. And I remember the first time I felt like I made it in poker was when he, when I, he called me, they, like when you're in part of they, he's like, they just don't know these, they just don't, they have no idea. I'm like, I'm they, I became they, I'm like, I finally made it in poker because I put a bad beat on Phil Helmuth, but he's just fun to play with because I find him easy to beat, frankly. And on top of that, he just he's a character at the table. That's beautiful. And I think I read or maybe heard about a strange circumstance uh, at one event where a lady came up to you and asked you to sign an obscure part of her body. Is that correct? Can you tell us the story? Yeah, I did. It was so that was at the World Series of Poker. And this woman came up and she's like, can you sign 
you know, with the, what they call the tramp stamp area, which is the lower back. She <laughs> wanted me to sign my name there. And I signed it. And she's like, okay, I'm gonna go get a tattoo and, and come back tomorrow. And I'm like, ha ha ha. That's cute. Funny, right? Comes back the next day. My name is tattooed on her back. It says World Series of Poker 2010 Rio. It's all color and kid poker underneath with my autograph. And uh, so, of course, I had to take a picture with her and, and then that. And her husband was right there, you know, and I was like, well, this is awkward, right? And he's like, oh, no, it's all right. You know, now I just see your name every time I'm, you know, having fun with my wife. I'm like, TMI. I'm good. Thanks. <laughs> there were no fisticuffs. That's nice. What's something that's uh, that's useful but underrated by far too many players in your estimation? Well, I think planning, you know, really. Like, I think a lot of people just, a lot of younger guys, they're so logical in terms of the way they think about things that they don't see how, you know, having clear intention and really setting up your life and your mindset to succeed can play a role. So something as simple as, like, they make the logical approach of like, okay, so I can book my flight to leave on day three, even though it's a five-day tournament, because the likelihood of me being knocked out is by about day three. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's somewhat self-sabotage, sabotaging a little way, you know, a little bit, because like now you have a backup plan on day three. So now on day three, if you're short on chips, you're thinking like, oh, you know, if I go broke right now, I can still make my flight and I won't have to change it and all these kind of things. I don't want to have any of those thoughts that distract me from what I'm doing. So for me, I'm going to, I'm going to plan for winning. I'm planning for success. If the tournament ends on Tuesday, my flight is booked on Wednesday. Now, sometimes I get knocked out early and I want to leave early. I'll change the flight then, but I'm not going to set up my, and I'm also going to like bring my outfit. Like, what am I going to be wearing at the final table? I actually pick out the outfit and I make sure that I have it with me. I don't want to like that to be a surprise. I visualize like, you know, how it's going to play out. And I think like, I think maybe some of the younger generation doesn't see that as nearly as valuable as I would say is, is it is. On that topic of planning, and it's something that we're talking with as the golf season comes to an end, we're kind of looking back at the year and we're starting to enter that goal setting process. And I know that that's something that you participate in and you even have shared that on your blog. You share your annual goals on your blog with your fans. And I'm just wondering if you can kind of describe what that goal setting process looks like for you and and then even give a bit of insight on why you decide to share that so publicly. So for me, I feel like, you know, sharing it publicly holds a little bit of accountability. And one of the most important things I think it is, you know, there is to be said about setting goals is I don't set goals that are just going to happen anyway. That's not really a goal. That's not juicy. I want to set goals that seem scary that I'm like, I don't know if I can actually accomplish that. That seems a little unrealistic. Unrealistic is exactly how I like my goals to look like one of the goals I'd set, you know, for a few years in a row was winning three World Series of Poker bracelets in a year. And people are like, well, that's not going to happen. Like, you know what? But I'd like to happen and it can happen because other people have done it. I've won two in a year before. So naturally, I'm going to set it for three. And I'll set all these goals in January and I share them publicly to sort of inspire other people to maybe, you know, do that for themselves. And then I drop it. Like, I don't check my goals. I'm not like, you know, I'm not attached to the results. At the end of the year, I'll look at my eight or nine goals that I set and be like, wow, we hit three or four of them. That's pretty good. And if we didn't, now I'll look back and be like, okay, what worked in terms of, you know, getting me to my goals and what didn't work? And what do I need to course correct? What do I need to shift maybe in order to be successful in the next year? Or what, maybe what is, maybe my priorities have changed. Maybe I didn't want that as bad as I thought I did. And I didn't put it in the time and the effort to do so. So, um, like it's, it's a living document, these goals, you know, they change every year. Like I might set a goal this year. I might've set a goal last year where I'm like, you know, now this year, I don't care about that this year. I'm going to set a different goal. And, but I always think it's important for me, for my own happiness to always be striving to be better, you know, each day. Yeah. Well, absolutely, man. And that's very much to, 
kind of the ethos of what we're trying to get out of these conversations and, and we'll wrap it up here. You've given us 45 minutes of your time and we're really, really appreciative. This has been uh, a thrill for both of us. Been a fan and following you uh, a long time. So, so thank you very much. We'll be, I know that the super high roller events coming up here in a few weeks. So we will be cheering hard and we'll be sweating some hands as well. Well, appreciate it guys. It was fun. Thanks very much for listening to this episode. If you want to learn more about Altus Performance, go check out altusperformance.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Team Altus and Instagram at Altus Performance. Also, thanks to Cordy Walker for his wonderful production work on this and coming episodes of Earn Your Edge.